Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you look for it, every day has cause for celebration. Celebrate a friend for their promotion baby wedding life thing. Celebrate yourself for keeping the couch warm. It's no easy feat, especially if it's a big couch. Or maybe you just want to celebrate living in 2023 where you can get beer, wine, and spirits delivered from Drizzly in under 60 minutes without leaving said couch. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com and get your favorite drinks delivered today. Hey, this is Corbin Reef, the author of the biography of Chris Cornell, Total Effing Godhead. You're listening to Whatever Nevermind. like to welcome to the program uh, Corbin Reef, author of the book Total Fucking Godhead, a biography of Chris Cornell. Uh, any hesitation on throwing a, an F-bomb in the title? No, you know, with, with a guy like Chris Cornell, you just got to go for it. You know, that's the way uh, he, he operated in his musical life. And I decided, you know, if, if I'm going to write a book about them, you know, I feel like that, that title captured, you know, what he was, mm-hmm. what the essence of, of Chris Cornell as the best, as best I could. So I, there was no trepidation whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're, we're, we're past that point maybe in, in pop culture, but yeah, I, I love the title, but I was just curious. Yeah, for sure. What is your, um, a relationship then to, to grunge or, or the music in general? You know, we're, we're, this is a, a podcast that celebrates the music of that period. Uh, were you a fan at the time, uh, coming in late? Uh, just give me, give us a little background on you. Yeah, for sure. You know, I was, I was a kid still like around, you know, I was a younger kid when, uh, when grunge first exploded, but you know, MTV was, was constantly on in our house. And, you know, I remember, you know, the songs like Teen Spirit video coming on the Jeremy video, you know, uh, Black Hole Sun video specifically was one that was just, I mean, when I first saw that, that really blew my mind. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I saw all those bands and you know, my friends and I would listen to those records and those CDs all the time. Well, we used CDs. And uh, yeah, just, it's, I've always, I've always had a love for that music. And then moving up to Seattle and, and becoming a music journalist and talking to so many of those people who were involved in that scene and seeing them live and shows and stuff. It just, you know, further kind of deepened my respect for what was going on and, and uh, just, just music I've always loved. Talk a little bit about that then. When would you have moved to Seattle and, and when would you say your music journalism career kind of started? 
Yeah, I moved to the Seattle area. Of, oof, man, it was it was it was in the two thousands. But okay. um, I moved up here because I I was in the army at the time, and I got stationed at uh, Joint Base Lewis McCord um, down near Tacoma, and I deployed to Iraq and you know all that stuff, and came back. And after I got out, I went to Evergreen State College in Olympia and just started writing about music because you know that's what you do here <laughs> in college, I suppose. And <laughs> Then I started writing for the Seattle Weekly and the Seattle Times and, uh, you know, Rolling Stones been all sorts of different places and kind of built a career accidentally <laughs> just because I was passionate about it, to be honest. Right on. That's awesome. Um, it, it, that kind of makes it seem almost obvious that you would end up writing a book like the one you did. Yeah, it's, it's, it was weird. I was kind of like preparing for it this whole time without knowing it, I suppose, you know, building... Uh, you know, a, a wealth of knowledge and resources and, and, and people who I could really lean on and, and talk to uh, that kind of helped me fill out the story because it's definitely, it was an incredible story and one that hadn't really been told fully before. And, you know, when, uh, after Chris passed, um, you know, I just felt a huge impetus to to make his music legacy, you know, known. I mean, there was, there was at the time, there was only one book, I think, written about Soundgarden. Uh, it was published in 1997 when they were still a band. <laughs> they hadn't broken up the first time yet. Okay. Um, but there's all these, there's, 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 uh, there's books about Nirvana and, and sub pop and grunge and, and, and Pearl Jam. And there's all these great books and it's fantastic. There's written about them, but you know, Soundgarden kind of, and Chris specifically got a short trip a little bit and, in his life in that regard. And, you know, I just did what I could to kind of amend the record and let people know, you know, what his, uh, what his lasting impact would, would be. Out of like, well, we can, you can broaden out as much as you want, but let's focus on the big four. Would, would Soundgarden have been your band out of those uh, four, you know, the Allison Chains, Pearl Jam, Nirvana deal? You know, I was like most people, you know, I, I, I love Nirvana and I love Soundgarden and Soundgarden. I, I, my favorite band of all time to be candid is Led Zeppelin. Hmm. And, you know, I kind of equate Soundgarden to the Led Zeppelin of the Seattle rock bands. You know, Nirvana is kind of the Beatles, the, the, uh, the Pearl Jam's kind of the who and, and Soundgarden is Led Zeppelin to me. So that was what I gravitated to, you know, long guitar solos and, and uh, you know, loud, abrasive music uh, that kind of goes on a long time, slaves and bulldozers, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. I mean, that's just kind of what I, what I like. So absolutely, I gravitated to them. Would, would, would that make Allison Chains the, the kiss? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, they were like a hair metal band for a little while, so yeah. maybe they're the uh, Motley Crue. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, well, it sounds like you're a little younger than, than, than I am. Um, you, you mentioned you were a teenager kind of when this stuff broke. So 1992, how old are you? 92. I was, man, I was, I was way younger than that. I was must, uh, five, five years old. Oh, wow. Okay. Right on. Uh, so yeah, that's actually really encouraging. So you kind of got into the music after the scene, you know, would have been basically, you know, definitely past its pinnacle. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was, it was, it was gone when, uh, by the time I pretty much, <laughs> found the music and everything sorry sure. my dog is following me with a speaker toy <laughs> going in the garage here no yeah the, the music scene was pretty much it had blown up <laughs> and it, you have uh, no idea how many times time dogs get in involved in these things is it? you know they, kinda... he's a he's a he's a 13 year old puppy and he demands oh. my attention pretty much all times right on um yeah but no i was late to the scene but i definitely uh i loved it from the from the time i, I saw it and and it really like i said mm-hmm. had a, a profound impact and and when I got up here, starting to be able to talk to these people, you know, uh, Jerry Cantrell, Kim Thiel, you know, all these different, Mike McCready, all these different people I've interviewed over the years, it just, you know, I've just always had a deep appreciation for it and kind of wanted to, you know, place it in its history the best I could, you know? Cool. Um, you know, you mentioned in your foreword that uh, as litigation over Chris's estate uh, started, it started to get harder and harder to get people to to open up for the book. Uh, are there any specific examples you can get into without, you know, getting in any trouble or... 
Nah, I'd rather not. You know, I, I kind of left it the way, the way it was in the book for for a reason. It's just mm-hmm. it's not it's not really worth it to kind of hash all that out again. Um, it was it was a it was a fun and challenging and amazing process to put it together. And and everybody who talked to me and everybody on the record and off, you know, I'll always appreciate uh, the fact they took the time to to give me some knowledge or, or fill me on some insights. And it was uh, it was definitely a labor of love for sure. Cool. Uh, let, let, let me ask you something that I've I've kind of brought up with a, a handful of the guests I've had on, because um, as, as as I go through each one of these records, you know, I have to do some research and, and get stories about how it was made, talk to, you know, do all the kind of digging, right? And as much as it's fun to kind of get sucked back to that time, I would have been in college when, when like, Nirvana broke. So uh, it was a real, you know, it was a real fun time to, to kind of have that change in music and be in kind of go with the flow but aside from that you're constantly reminded of people that we've lost along the way you know what i mean including chris but there gets to be a little bit of a darkness and a weight to this whole process just from my end on what i'm doing now as someone who actually developed the the, spent the time in in the research and the interview to 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 put a book like this together did you ever feel something like that yourself like we're like it just got a little heavy just for a little bit or Oh yeah, absolutely. That, that's kind of what I mean. I, I think I might have been finished a, a little bit earlier uh, writing it and putting it together had that not kind of been the case. Um, you know, there was, especially the last chapters. You know, when you when you kind of know what's coming down the road, yeah. and um, you're kind of. I mean, when you're writing it, you're you're kind of writing like in the present tense because you really want to put people um, in in the kind of place you know where Chris was at in his career. So when I was in writing about 1991, I wasn't thinking about what happened in 2017. I was kind of thinking about what happened in 1991. And in the process of doing that, it kind of made Chris just, I don't know, I, I, I grew a lot of attachment to him, you know, and through, through kind of doing that, just kind of learning more about him as a person and talking to all these people that knew and loved him so much. Um, but by the time it got to those, you know, those pivotal kind of final chapters, it was, it was very difficult. And it, it took a long time to kind of <laughs> get up the, uh, the, the gumption to put it together and do it with the respect and the justice that that kind of that final act, you know, deserves. Um, but yeah, no, it was, it was, it got to be tough for sure. You know, one of the, uh, the people that, you know, that, well, probably one of the, the biggest people to, to go during that time was Kurt Cobain, of course. Um, now there's some stories in your book and other ones that I've read that he could be just a little bit prickly on the topic of Soundgarden. Like, it seems like he liked the band, but for some reason, I mean, he wasn't like, he was a little harder on Pearl Jam probably, but for the most part, he seemed to support the Seattle scene with the exception of kind of those two bands. And, and I don't know, it just seemed odd to me that, that Kurt would have, I don't know, some kind of issue. Do you any backstory there that you can share? Yeah, you know, I think that there's an element of Kurt Cobain when he was in the media that he, he kind of knew what he was doing when he was talking to journalists. You know, they, they were looking for juicy quotes, and, you know, he was more than willing to play the game and, and okay. kind of, you know, pick fights with Guns N' Roses and, and do all sorts of crazy stuff. <laughs> well, that one I, I understood. Of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I know he had a lot of admiration for uh, for Chris. I know he had a lot of admiration for Soundgarden. You know, uh, Ben Shepard, as you probably would read if you, you know, for those who have read the book, you know, uh, toured with Nirvana, Soundgarden's yep. bassist uh, these days, toured with Nirvana as their, he was supposed to be their second guitarist, but he ended up kind of working the merch table uh, for a while. <laughs> and uh, he was really close friends with them and, you know, when uh, when Kurt died, it really it really impacted the, the band in a in a tremendous way. They all they all had a tremendous respect for him, and I think that you know Soundgarden was around a lot longer than Nirvana. They were they were around since about eighty four eighty five, and and Nirvana kind of you know hit the scene around eighty nine or so. So there was the, they were kind of the big brothers of the scene in the first place. So there was there was definitely a there was definitely an element of looking up in some respect to uh, to what what Soundgarden was by by Nirvana. 
That was a, a fun part of the book, uh, at least very well documented anyway, was because I knew Soundgarden had been around longer, and I, I had a little bit of understanding of the other history even before I started this show. Um, but it's really detailed, and it really hits home in like, you know, 84 to 92 is a long time. Just how much long time. I mean, they and 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 you know, you don't really even even if you know, I knew it back then, I don't think I ever really tied it together as, uh, until I read your books. They have <laughs> quite a bit of history ahead of those guys. Yeah, they really did. You know, uh, it, it's so funny that Soundgarden ended up being like the band that broke out kind of last. Super yeah. hit in 94, Nevermind already came out in 91, you know, Pearl Jam's 10 had come out in 92, I believe. Um, and you know what? Not to not to slight Bad Motorfinger, which is you know I'm going to score on record as saying Soundgarden's best album. Or oh, sorry, Super Knows their best. I'll say Bad Motorfinger is my favorite. Hmm. Um, but you know it, it took them to put it. quite a bit of time to, to to break out to the you know to the degree those other bands did. I mean even Alice in Chains. Um, but they had yeah it was a long 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 haul between going from you know independent record label of Sub Pop to then another independent record label SST because they wanted to make. Uh, you know, a, a record for the same, you know, label that made Black Flag albums and Minuteman albums. It was kind of important to them. And then they go to, you know, A&M and do their major label thing in around 89. So, you know, they, they had a lot of uh, a lot of road ahead of them before they kind of uh, hit the major, major national consciousness. Okay. Um one of the things that that uh, you touch on in the book too, uh, that that you know comes up in other things that we've done, is Hiro Yamamoto, of course, quitting the band after the Louder Than Love, I think, tour. But um, you know, I think touring was one of his reasons for not wanting to do it. But yet he continued to stay in the music business. I always thought that was a bit con- conflicted. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it's it's so funny you bring that up. The last the last show I saw before the uh, quarantine uh, happened, I was supposed to see the Strokes, but the last show I ended up seeing uh, in February, I think, was uh, Heroes Band Stereo Donkey in Bellingham, Washington, and uh, it's like a fun surf rock band that he's got going on up there, up there now, and it's uh, he's, he's still doing it, still still hitting the, the still hitting the bass and uh, sounding great. They must not tour. <laughs> just... Yeah, no, he keeps it close to home these days, I think. Uh, another thing that you, you booked did a great job of, it's probably the best, um, retelling of the whole temple of the dog period, because I'm, I was going largely off of memory now to just to share a little bit with you. I was working at the college radio station when that record was initially dropped and, um, Soundgarden, none of that stuff had really blown up. In my mind, the timeline was very far apart from when that record actually blew up, but uh, right. From when it was released, and but everything I've researched never really combined that, so I started to think maybe my thirty-year-old memory on that time was just a little bit foggy, you know. Because but you, you you do break it down. It was actually re-released in ninety-two, kind of um, a, almost a full year after it came out. After Pearl Jam kind of broke, after Nirvana had obviously started dominating everything, and that music video. If if it existed before that kind of second runaround, I never saw it. So that was interesting to find out that they actually shot and released that initially for for the whole release of the thing. Um, but yeah, it uh, there was a big gap between when that thing that and it's it's amazing to me that 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 album got released and recorded when none of these people are are heavy hitters in the industry at the at that time. Yeah, that's it, it speaks to the nature of what that project was really about. It was a, it was a passion project, you know, that Chris and and you know the, the Pearl Jam members had written, you know, for their friend. Um, it wasn't intended originally to be this, you know, blockbuster era defining supergroup right. album that it ended up becoming. Uh, you know, what basically happened is, you know, singles, the the Cameron Crowe film drops, 
bad motor finger drops, 10 drops, Nirvana blows up. And uh, all of a sudden the record labels remember, Oh, Hey, you know, they, they, they made a record together, didn't they? So <laughs> they bring up the, uh, they actually filmed the music <laughs> video before, but they recut it with more footage of, of Eddie involved looking wistfully <laughs> off into the, the reeds and stuff and put it into the, uh, you know, and the M- MTV rotation. And, and then the rest is history. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that record, uh, what are, what are your thoughts on that? I, I, I adore that album so much. Oh, it's it's fantastic. It's it's to me, it's unimpeachable. I mean, you know, if you want to talk about you know music and and it coming from an authentic place, you know, it really doesn't get much more authentic than than that Temple of the Dog record and, and what it means. And and I'll say this, I'll I'll, I'll make this claim. Um, it's, it's something I actually really do believe is that uh, Call Me a Dog on that Temple of the Dog record is is by far, I think, Chris's best vocal performance across his career. opening and it's just so mournful and then the screech at the at that very end where he hits that high register just, what an incredible oh man <laughs> exactly just... yeah that's exactly you know? but he works for it you know he, he really you know he builds to that moment and it's it's just so cinematic i really wow what an album <laughs> we, we can just gush on his singing just a little bit one of the things that i think <laughs> he um did that few singers with his range were able to uh, I mean there are others but 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 a lot of them struggle with with this thing I'm about to talk about where they they can do that rangy high stuff or that really powerful singing but Chris could really drop it smooth into kind of that lower register kind of just slightly above talking melodic kind of thing in a way that that I think is is really a, look it's not easy to do so I mean but but he was just a master of it and that song is a great example of that Oh yeah, it's beyond the wheels. Another great example of that yeah. too, where it starts off just so brooding, and then it shoots off into the atmosphere. And it's funny, I was I was talking to um, some of the uh, engineers who made that Audio Slave album with him, and and it was kind of illuminating to learn that you know at that point of his career he was doing like coaches, just sitting down in a chair, hitting those high, incredible screams, <laughs> just kind of sitting down in a chair with a with a mic in front of him at uh, in, in Seattle. Leg. It's just. His legs yeah, crossed. Some people are superhuman that way, you know? <laughs> he's, he's holding a cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they, he was uh, man, he was one of a kind. Um, well, you know, and then the other thing about Temple of Dog, it was largely, as far as how it was pushed, especially once it blew up, it was like, this is an album that Chris wrote about Andrew Wood, when really only the first two songs were written specifically with Andy in mind. And then once he brought in other people to collaborate with, the, the album kind of grew organically. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, he ha- he'd written those songs um, uh, uh, on the road. Say hello to heaven uh, was one of them that he he wrote while on the road, and I think in Europe. Um, and he he kind of stuffed them in his bag, and and when he came back to Seattle, he you know he he made demos of them and kind of passed them off to his wife Susan Silver, who passed them off to Jeff Ament, the bassist in what what had been Mother Love Bone and became Pearl Jam yeah. in in some respects. And then him and Stone Gossard got together, also from Pearl Jam, and. 
originally the idea was to kind of work a uh, and do sort of like a covers album with those two songs and record some of Andy's songs, but you know there was some pushback I guess from in the community about doing something like that. So they just went to back to the drawing board and wrote you know eight extra songs for the album and and the rest is history. Um, and I don't, I don't want to bring it down, but I, I just recently lost a, a high school friend and I kind of, I mean, in the middle of all this, but that, that the lyrics to say hello to heaven, I mean, Jesus, what, a, what a brilliant song. I mean, they oh. so poignant and, and, and when you break it down and then, then when something personal happens to you and you grab onto it, it's just like, man, this guy, what the hell? Who he got everything? You know what I mean. He was taller than most people. He was good looking, uh, and he's got this voice, and he can write these songs. It usually, isn't that stacked in your favor? You know what I mean? Oh no, I totally agree with you. And it's 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 funny. I think those other elements of him that we talked about just a minute ago. You know, his, him as a singer, uh, his physical presence, and all the all the things that are you know dynamic about him. That you, if you see him, kind of caused to obscure a lot of his ability and power as a songwriter. You know, he's writing in these strange tunings and these mm. odd time signatures, and he's bringing this vivid, like, uh, you know, really impactful lyric writing, you know, in songs of, you know, like, 4th of July, even on, on sound Super Unknown, which is just this, like, acid nightmare of a song. It's, <laughs> and then Black Hole Sun, I mean, it just fell on black days, um, you know, uh, outshine. you just making up words at that point. Yeah. You know? just, he was really creative lyricist, and... Um, it, you know, I think that so many of, the, of his other talents kind of obscured that for some people. Yeah, you know, well, I mean, he was a bit of an Adonis. a bad problem to have in, in the grand scheme of things. Right. <laughs> uh, in, in those specific uh, categories, I don't I don't pity him too much. But uh, <laughs> Right, exactly. <laughs> you're, you're 100% correct. Um, well, I should probably let you know, Corbin, that I'm in Minnesota. I'm born and raised. Um, I'm, I'm calling you from St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, there's a, your book tells a story about the line feeling Minnesota from, from outshined, uh, uh, come, came from him <laughs> wearing some awkward outfit and he kind of sees himself in the mirror and he sees kind of this gloomy, dark guy, uh, which is the feeling Minnesota part. And then he's got this kind of goofy surfer outfit on and, uh, well, of course that really isn't much of a compliment to say you're feeling Minnesota. So <laughs> that was a fun story he, uh, though. It was, yeah, he was, he was on tour again in Europe. <laughs> it was another day. I don't think he knew what town he was in, and he was feeling like absolute shit. Uh, and he probably thought he looked like shit, but then when he looked in the mirror, he looked like, you know, Chris Cornell <laughs> looks, and he's like, holy shit, you know? And then uh, that line came. It's actually, he, he credited as being one of the most personal lines uh, that he'd ever written. and kind of opened up hmm. a looking California, feeling Minnesota. It kind of opened up a whole new world of songwriting for him where he, he realized he could write about himself directly and have it translate universally. Um, it was it was a weird moment that ended up, ended up being really important to his uh, growth as a songwriter. So, as Minnesotans, we should uh, take a little bit of pride in in giving him the inspiration <laughs> for feeling like shit. Exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and you, you have the replacements; you're fine. It's, it's gonna be okay, Minnesota. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen the movie Kingpin, but it's kind of like being you know your last name be, being like a Munson, you know, whatever they, they in the movie. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Feeling Michigan doesn't really have the same ring to it anyway. <laughs> uh, that's a good way to put it. Um, could have used Iowa. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, anyway. Feeling North Dakota. Hey, there, now we're talking. Now we're on to something. Now we're uh, getting, we're, we're workshopping it. All right. Uh, Michael Beinhorn comes in to produce Super Unknown. Um, and we had Michael on the show, and, and he did not shy away uh, of the, the stories of conflict between the band and him. Uh, uh, what did you find out in that level? 
It was a long, long contentious process. Um, you know, he they, they was they were banging their heads heads against the wall for a long time. You know, just cooking up demos to kind of everyone kind of knew that Soundgarden was going to be the next big thing, or mm-hmm. or if if they kind of pulled it off with Super Unknown, it was kind of expected that okay, everyone's waiting on this record to see what they're going to do next after Bad Motor Finger. So there was a lot of impetus to really get it right, and they were writing a, a, just a lot of material um, and sending it to Beinhorn, and and some of it was good, some of it was bad, and. Uh, eventually they get into the studio and then three weeks later they, they leave to go on tour with Neil Young <laughs> yeah. and then they get back and it's just this really intense process of, uh, of trial and error and, and working to trying to get uh, drum sounds out of Matt Cameron who's more of a I mean Matt Cameron's one of the greatest drummers of all time he's, he's basically a human metronome who can solve math problems to a level that is just unfathomable but, but Beinhorn put him through the paces and tried to get you know the best drum sound and you know Matt didn't always like that and it <laughs> and then with Chris, you know, and he ended up recording his own vocals by himself at night when everyone else kind of left the studio because, you know, he he was able to kind of direct himself that way. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, no, it, it wasn't always it wasn't always fun, and but it was there was some fraught moments. But you know, the end result speaks for itself. Yeah, well, one of the things that that I found surprising was that, especially when you consider how long they've been been a band at this point, was that they were very unified still. In like, so it wasn't like. Um, a lot of times when you you have a producer that butts head, it's really one or two guys, and there's there's some hurt feelings involved. Where this was really more the way I put it to Michael was that it was it was kind of like a circling the wagons, and he he agreed. He thought that yeah they they definitely were a group that put a wall up between him. It wasn't like he had a hard time working with one of the members or two of them, you know. Right. Yeah. And and yeah, they were definitely a unified front uh, for for the longest time, and. You know the the music and the purity meant the most to them, and they were a tight group. They'd known each other for so long at that point too. They had a really great shorthand and the chemistry between them. And you know when you've when you've been in a van with someone and getting you know doing things like getting busted by the DEA in Louisiana, you know <laughs> two years, three years earlier, you know it kind of tends to bond you together. And when an outsider yeah. comes in, it's it's definitely hard to break through those those walls. Yeah, yeah, it definitely can be. There's, but you know, it can also like when you've been in a band for ten years, you can get kind of sick of each other and like, I'm so sick of this guy getting all the attention in the studio or something, you know. So, I, whatever. It, it, it's it's refreshing to see that they were at least you know together as a group. I, I think that that definitely. You know, and also you know, conflict like that can actually you know help the creative process. But I think they all sort of have a really deep mutual respect for each other's uh, talents. You know. Chris was talent undeniable. Matt's talent undeniable. Ben was bringing some incredibly interesting songs at that point, and then Kim Style is one of the most incredible texture guitar players to mm-hmm. ever, you know, <laughs> to do it in the metal, you know, rock realm. It's you know, and then at least there was, a, there was a lot of respect for each other's abilities, and and um, you know, it kind of translates when you hear the music. Yeah, you can definitely. And that, that's a that's a gr- really great point too, because the more you research this band, the more that comes home that, that there really wasn't like. Um, you know, as the band grew bigger, it wasn't like Chris Starr was like he was trying to p- pursue that as much. He seemed to generally like collaborating and with almost any with almost any project that he worked on. Yeah, he was a he was a great collaborator, and it's interesting that you know when people for the longest time thought Soundgarden, you know, the, the first face they would see was Kim Thiele. You know, he was the one in the guitar magazines a lot of times. Yeah, Chris had his great solo career, but you know, in terms of Soundgarden, Kim was kind of the one of the more identifiable figures of the band. Um, 
but you know, Chris is a collaborator. You know, he 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 worked with so many different people through the years. You know, writing it, uh, this book was almost like a <laughs> it was like a who's who of, of rock history that he worked with. You know, from from Johnny Cash to to the Rage Against the Machine guys to mm-hmm. you know even even working with Timbaland uh, in 2009 <laughs> on, on that Scream record, which was you know panned. But you know, it was it was an interesting choice. I'll say that. You know, there's, it's not the greatest album in the world, but you know, if you want to do something different with your solo career, which he he did, he. His solo career is very fascinating because it was very, very different from basically every other music he made. You know, from adult contemporary to the to the kind of hip hop influences, and and then kind of acoustically, you know, with higher truth near the end of his life. Um, you know, he was always kind of willing to go down paths in his in his solo work that uh, that were very uh, uh, unexpected. I I am a big fan, even when I don't like the output of just uh, an artist doing that. I just try something. Why not? I mean. You, you, I, I'm with you. I don't think it's that great of a record, but it's not as bad as it it gets uh, talked about sometimes. We, we got King Animal three years later. Everyone was, everyone was fine, you know? Yeah, I guess. All right. Well, for Down on the Upside, they kind of kept it in-house. Um, they brought in, was it, I'm sorry, his name is, is Andy Adam Casper? Uh, Adam Casper, yeah. All right. Uh, I'm, I'm doing okay there then. Um, uh, and he was basically the in-house um, engineer uh, at Bad Animal Studio, so he worked with them on Super Unknown. But, but they, they co-produced it with him. It was uh, surprising to hear how fractured. Now, now at this point, maybe the band is starting to get sick of each other because they're really not working together a lot on this album, right? No, I mean, not really. There was there was kind of a confusion for a while that you know Kim thought they were doing rehearsals for for a next album, and they were like, Kim, the, the record's almost done. You know, there was there was definitely some communication issues going on at that point. Not the way to uh, find that message out. <laughs> no, exactly. I mean, they, you, 1996 when they were working on that record at uh, Stone Gossip's studio, uh, Studio Litho. Um, by that time, they'd been together for a long time, and I think that. You know, there was an element of, you know, looking for new things, new worlds to conquer. You know, the, the scene in Seattle had been kind of collapsing. You know, they weren't, you know, the necessarily the hot new things anymore. And um, I think that it just, you know, it's one of those cases where, you know, just time got the best of them. Um, and, you know, at the after the end of that album, when they broke up in Hawaii, you know, I don't think anyone saw that coming. But it was, uh, I think it was, uh, it was just kind of an, an example of a band who kind of ran out of steam for a little bit. And you know, kind of explored new ventures. Yeah, and I'll, uh, I'll 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 save it the, the story for a tease to help sell maybe your book for anybody that listens. But I had never heard that story about how the last show went down. So that was really uh, some great insight that somebody who reads the book can get. There you go. Yeah, check it out for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, now f- before reading your book, I I I heard that Kiss or, or Chris largely kept his you know drug and alcohol use pretty much in check. Uh, during most of Soundgarden's, you know, prime time, uh, your book kind of confirms that. But it sounds like basically after the breakup of, of Soundgarden, you know, that's when maybe some of the, you know, the mental issues that, that he's probably had to kind of work around with most of his life start taking over. And then, of course, the the substance abuse kind of starts to to pick up there. And that's that was that wasn't the most comfortable thing to to read in your book. No, it wasn't. It was it was the it was the most uncomfortable thing to write about as well. Um, you know, yeah, near the end of uh, when they were kind of working on down on the upside. You know, Soundgarden always kind of been a drinking band. You know, mm-hmm. uh, they were you know they would, always had that reputation. But you know, Chris was kind of drinking more and more near the end of Soundgarden, and and once Audio Slave started in around two thousand two thousand one two thousand two, you know, 
he started getting into different sorts of substances, you know, opioids and things like that nature. And, um, eventually went to rehab and <laughs> oddly, you know, he, he went to rehab for twice as long as he, uh, he was supposed to, he stayed for like two months rather than one. Mm. And, um, he got clean. Uh, actually, he they checked him out of rehab specifically to film the Cochise music video, uh, and then checked him back in, and he completed his uh, his, uh, his treatment there. And um, yeah, it was something he he battled with, um, uh, you know, and it was, it was you know a part of who he was. And um, well, you mentioned the audio slave thing, and I had forgotten some of that drama because uh, it was reported back in the day that they, you know it was it was it was such a poorly kept secret that they were getting together that I knew about it in Minnesota. <laughs> but then there was a bit of a, a split for a little while. Then all of a sudden, it's back on. You know, you, you kind of detail that in the book. Yeah, it was it was weird. They had a they had a management issue. Basically, it was uh, they both had different managers. And they couldn't agree on which management team to go with, so they both fired their respective managers and hired a new management team. And uh, Chris worked out his um, his you know his stint in rehab, and then they were able to you know get that record out. I mean, it leaked too. That, that record leaked for uh, back when that was ago, a thing. Time. Yeah, exactly. Someone had uh, gotten hold of the files and shared them online, and song titles were wrong, and the, there was poor mixes with you know, scratch vocals and stuff. So you know there was a lead time where people kind of you know, had a chance to listen to this music and, and, you know, didn't feel exactly positive about it in that way too. So when the record finally hit, I think people were primed to tag it as a super group. Also the leak had happened. So it wasn't necessarily fresh and they didn't get the biggest reception coming out of the gate, but I think that uh, time will, will vindicate that record because, you know, show me how to live gasoline, getaway car, the last remaining light shadow on the sun. Those are incredible songs and uh, they, they deserve their due. Did you, uh, over the course of uh, researching, did you find out who leaked it? No, I didn't. I, the, 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 yeah, there was some theories, but I didn't couldn't confirm anything. So I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to say. Want to put want to put his mind blast. Even if I say, can you share an unconfirmed theory? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you. It had to be someone who had to access to the tape. Is, is what I'll say. But that's I. I wouldn't be able to, to verify anything. Okay. Um, <laughs> did you hear it? Oh yeah, there's still you could still find the, the 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 if you dig deep enough on the internet you can find the uh, the leaks and the scratch vocal stuff um, on YouTube and different downloading sites and things. It's it's out there. I wonder if like when someone reads that book now, like that uh, might, someone younger, you know, um, or someone that just didn't pay that much attention to this stuff to understand how big a deal that really was. Yeah, it was tremendous. I mean, back then, a leak could destroy you. I mean, it, it would, it would, all this time, you know, months and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Like, even just the, the Cochise video, they not even take into account, you know, the, that what it costs to record the album with Rick Rubin, of all people, who's not cheap, uh, in LA, you know, for the time they did rehearsing. And, but the, the, just the, the Cochise video cost $750,000. Oh, that's amazing. You know, to, 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 to have a leak happen and kind of, uh, hurt that rollout. I mean, it didn't hurt them. And it went multiple times platinum. So, you know, didn't hurt them too bad, but I mean, uh, it definitely didn't help things. <laughs> and the visual of Chris doing press interviews in treatment <laughs> was pretty amazing. Yeah, you know, you got to do what you got to do. You know, he was he was a guy who took his responsibilities uh, not too lightly. You know, he he uh, he, he was willing to uh, to even admit where he was when he when he was on the phone at the payphone at the at the facility talking to these journalists. <laughs> and, you know, shout out to him for that. Well, this still been in the day when, like, uh, prepaid phone cards were a popular thing. Was it using that? <laughs> Perhaps. I actually don't know. <laughs> uh, another thing that I kind of forgot about, that Cuba gig, that was a really big deal with Audio Slave going to Cuba. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, it was, a, it was a massive concert, too. Tens of thousands of people showed up for that show, and it was a... Uh, 
you know, American artists had kind of visited before and done small scale, you know, things, mm-hmm. cultural exchanges. But that Audio Save concert, no one had ever attempted anything of that enormity. Um, you know, I think the Rage Against the Machine guys had wanted to do something like that in Cuba for a long time. And there was, you know, reasons why they hadn't done it in, in Rage. But, you know, when the Audio Save got the opportunity, they went for it. And it was a whole... <laughs> It was, it was like a military operation trying to get that whole, that whole thing uh, put together. But, you know, um, ultimately kind of broke down that barrier and, you know, more bands like the Rolling Stones and, and you know, normalizing our Cuba relations, you know, as America has in the last, you know, five, six years. Um, you know, who knows, you know, what kind of impact the, that, that concert has had. Exactly. I mean, it um, I mean, and that would have still been at the time when the travel ban was was in effect, if I recall. So- yeah, exactly. They had to hire like Cuban um stagehands, human, you know, film crew, like everything had to be done like in, in the island and then they couldn't like take much. It was a whole, it was a whole, just a logistical nightmare to kind of get it put together. But, you know, in the end it worked out and, and, and if you get the DVD, I would, I would definitely watch it because it was one of the oh, I've seen it. first yeah, few great. occasions. Yeah. Yeah. It was one of the first few occasions where they started playing like Soundgarden songs, Rage songs in their set, you know, together. And, uh, that's fantastic. And you mentioned that, like, you know, when he first went into treatment here, he's fairly new to the band with, with the Audio Slave guys, and they were very supportive and were actually involved in his, in his uh, intervention. Um, I, I don't know that much about them as people, and I don't, I don't recall reading it in your book. Um, were they kind of straight-edge dudes, uh, just casual drinkers, or what, do you know anything on that level? Not not really. I didn't really kind of go, go into that. I'll say that they, they really did have his back, and... and uh, in, in a real and profound way. Um, I think, uh, you know, all those guys really stepped up and, 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 you know, they had had their own different things in their past with different people. And, and, you know, they, they, when they kind of got audience played together, it was important for them to stand behind Chris and especially Timmy C, uh, Timothy Comerford, you know, he really, uh, of all the people in that band was, was, uh, went out of his way to, to help Chris and be there for him. And, um, I think he, uh, Chris, always really appreciated that. Hmm. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a very it was uh, reassuring, I guess, because you know, w- with rock music, you know, there's there just being sober, but but having to go back to that career can be have its own, you know, I don't know, hurdles, I guess. But oh, for sure, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, when did uh, when did Chris uh, divorce Susan? When did Chris and uh, Susan get divorced? Maybe I should say it like that. <laughs> Yeah, I think it, I think it was around 2004 or so. Uh, I'm sorry, say it again. Like, was it just before Audio Slave or? Uh, it was it was during the Audio Slave okay. era. Okay, and he got married to Vicky fairly fast after that. Is that right? Correct. Yes. Okay. Um, well, I, one more. I, I don't know if I have anything else on that. I guess uh, I was. I thought it was interesting. I remember at the time that Chris was living in Paris, and and that came up in the book. Um, uh, it seemed like a very Chris Cornell thing to do. Uh, yeah, wearing John Bravados and opening up restaurants. <laughs> yeah, why stuff. not, man? Life was Live good. your life, you know? Uh, <laughs> uh, on the Audio Slave thing, I was kind of hoping there'd be a little more detail on the breakup. Were, were they... Has it, Did you talk to any of those guys? Was that an area that it was difficult to get uh, some information out? Because it's kind of... It's a couple paragraphs, if I remember right. Yeah, it was a weird thing. You know, they they recorded three albums in like four years. Yeah. I mean, they they recorded a tremendous amount of material, and then uh, you know, Chris did the James Bond theme song, and the Rage guys got like an offer to do you know a reunion with Zach Delaroca at Coachella, and it just seemed like a natural sort of same thing with Soundgarden. There's, there's almost no story there. It, it's almost it's weird. There's these non stories to Chris's uh, you know band disintegrations, but they kind of just decided to go their separate ways, almost uh, almost independent or equal with each other, and it just 
it kind of worked out in the end. I mean, you know, Chris did his solo stuff for a while, and uh, and then you know, I have a Soundgarden and, and the Rage guys. You know, yeah. the pandemic can never end. We will hopefully see them again here soon. Yeah, I guess. Um, well, they, they they do eventually. The the Soundgarden guys get back together, kind of to I don't know, start a website, start selling stuff, and that leads to a, a reunion. Um, again, uh, something that I was hoping to get a little more detail on. Do you have any idea what Kim Thale did? for a decade because it really he kind of just went away <laughs> yeah he just kind of hung out and he wasn't really you know too pressed to kind of uh to follow up a, a, a different career with after Soundgarden. he kind of laid low and and did some you know interesting things here and there with you know different collaborators you know that that kind of that he was interested in doing things with um but yeah maintain a low profile you know not not like Ben. Uh, ben did some stuff um, right. uh, a little bit here and there, and Matt obviously, you know, became the drummer from Pearl Jam and became <laughs> his, <laughs> his, his calendar filled up for the end of time. Uh, and then Chris did what he did. But yeah, but uh, but Kim kind of went. You know, he went a little underground um, for a while, and you know that's. And then when Soundgarden reunited, he kind of. I mean, it's nice to see lately. You know, in uh, you know, he was working with the MC50. You know, the MC5 um, uh, band that Wayne Kramer has put together, and. He was doing stuff with that, and you know, he just recently reunited with the Soundgarden guys the other night for that uh, Alice in Chains tribute with Tad. Oh, they, they, what did they and, do? Oh, they did. Uh, I think they did Angry Chair together, uh, okay. the Alice in Chains song. I gotta look that up. I've been and, seeing uh, all the uh, like all a lot of these other uh, videos being shared on social media. I, I need to dig into that. It was more. fantastic. It was fantastic. They're all wearing masks. <laughs> Mike <laughs> McCready comes in with his blazing guitar solo too. It's, it's phenomenal. Because hopefully what I'm against saying is you know, Kim kept a low profile back then. I'm hoping that he doesn't do the same thing this time around because, man, Kim Thiel riffs are awesome, and I hope we get more of them. And, and, and I can't recall where I read this. I want to say it was a Rolling Stone or maybe Spin article about Soundgarden reuniting, but and maybe I just have a bad memory. I swear there was a story like at the time when, when they first started meeting to, to kind of get the business stuff in order and all that kind of thing. Like Ben Shepard was living in, in like the office of a friend's bar. Yeah, he was, he was, he'd fallen on rough times for sure. You know, I think that, you know, it was, he had said like in an interview, he was homeless and like, that was kind of overstating it to some extent, but he wasn't, it was in a great place. Um, and then, you know, um, you know, he came back in Soundgarden and kind of put things back together. But you know, no, yeah, it was it was it was that decade um, between you know, Soundgarden's end and Sound and uh, Soundgarden's renewal was uh, was very tough for him. Like he got his his bass that he used on all the Soundgarden records stolen. He had a uh, he made a record that got got wiped or it got stolen or something too. Like the masters were taken. Like it was a it was a long it was a long road for that guy. And you know, I'm, I was so happy that when uh, when that band reunited, and, uh, he got a second chance at that stuff. Yeah, I mean, he's a super talented guy, too. You know what I mean? He's not just the bass player, if, if you get with my draft. No, player. no. And yeah, he, he wears the, the bass really cool. low. <laughs> yeah, he definitely does. Look at the writing credits on Down on the Upside, and you'll you'll see Ben Shepard's impact. Oh, yeah. I mean, and it started on Super Unknown. He had, he had some key contributions there. Uh, when, I, when I did talk to Michael Beinhorn, I, I mentioned I professed my love for the song Half. I know that, that kind of gets dumped on as kind of a throwaway track by some fans. I think that song is fantastic. Uh, that, that's you. We can disagree on that one, but that's <laughs> <laughs> I like uh, head down. Head down's good. But, yeah, that uh, too. Yeah, exactly. And they, they just I don't know. Okay, fair enough. Well, but before I get to to, to to the next chapter, let me ask you this: Did you hear the Ultra Mega OK uh, remix or the yeah proper remix that Jack and Dino did? I assume. Oh yeah, absolutely. I have it on vinyl in my office right now. It's phenomenal. 
phenomenal. It, it, it's night and day. It's like I, I, I've, I've owned that record since, you know, basically I got into all this music. I, I bought everything, and I just never gravitated to that record. Jack and Dino made that record sound like Soundgarden. Yeah, I think the remastered version might be, you know, probably, I mean, personally, I would say Bad Motor Finger, Super Unknown, then then Ultra Mega, okay. Just, I mean, it's just so, it's, I mean, like for me, like I mentioned earlier, I, I love Led Zeppelin, and that's the most like Led Zeppelin-iest uh, Soundgarden album in a lot of mm. ways. Yeah, I suppose. Uh, over Louder Than Love, huh? I think so, personally. I think that Loud, Louder Than Love can do with the with a remaster, if, if we're being kind of completely honest. There's some low-end lacking on that album, I think. Oh, that, I'm, I'm down for that, man. Yeah, I think that it could add some uh, some, some new dimension to that, that one if they ever get around to it. Kind of messed up uh, that uh, I, I would, well, I, I think it's pretty obvious, but I, I, think, I think I've even seen Chris state this, that, that you know, basically Big Dumb, Big Dumb Sex is probably their poppiest catchiest song and it has the word fucking it 47 times or so whatever yeah but you know he that's the thing like he wrote that song and he it was like obvious like if he had written probably different lyrics that could have been a huge breakout rock hit but it just like the integrity of the band or whatever he like couldn't allow himself to do that so like a, a toss-off song instead instead about a you know don't you want to thrill me all the only all, all the innuendo that he put in there it's just you know that's just that's the way he rolled and the the song "Loud Love," um, I I use a snippet of it as the the show intro, um, but it's one of my favorite intros of all time. That part where um, you know the 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 uh, feedbacking guitar just kind of morphs into this high pitched scream of Chris, where you I mean you almost don't even know where it transitions from guitar to his voice. It is like a I don't know hair in the back of the neck moment for me, man. I just. I, sometimes I listen to that song and I I get just past that intro and I hit back. You know I'm like gotta hear that again. It's, mm. to- totally agree with you. Unless unless people think that I'm I'm trying to slander louder than love here. I love that song. I think I agree with you completely on the on the introduction there. Just the way that that whale goes in and that oh, that so like good. underlying riff. But even more than that, that song Gun. I mean, if you mm. saw Soundgarden live and they played Gun, you would remember it because. It starts off slow and sludgy and and whatever in the beginning, but then it like goes in this break in that clip near the end, and it's just it is it is one of the most mind blowing experiences you'd ever see in your life. So good. Getting to kind of the the downer of this thing, uh, Chris dies, of course, um, on May seventeenth, two thousand seventeen. I saw them on May thirteenth, so four days b- before he died. I, I was covering the wow. show for Decibel Geek, uh, so I had a photo pass, and I so I got to see. Basically, kind of my heroes right there. Um, and so when I heard the news, obviously it was pretty jarring. I was like, holy fuck, I, I just submitted these to their management. And now the guy, so it, it, it just really was, I, I think almost across the board, it was unexpected the, 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 for everybody involved. You know what I mean? Right, totally. I, I, I No one saw that coming. I, 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 I was just shocked as everyone else. I was writing... I was working at Uproxx at the time, and, and um, that morning it was just it was it was awful having to write stories and and kind of contemplate what that what that meant. Um, it, it came so far out of nowhere that yeah, it, it to this day I think that people are still trying to come to grips with it. I know I'm still trying to come to the grips with it, and I wrote a book about the guy. It's it's, it's <laughs> it was such a tragedy. It still remains such a tragedy. Yeah, I I read 
the, your breakdown on it uh, three times, and because it kind of unearthed that that um, kind of unsettled feeling I had about the whole thing, and and it, now I feel like less connected to it. I don't know if that's the right way to say it. it it's even more mystifying, I guess, uh, just going through that. Um, let me ask you this. Um, you, you talk about how after the last show, the band gets in the bus and starts heading towards the next city for the show where Chris actually goes to a local hotel. Was that normal for them to to just split like that? It was, yeah. The band traveled by bus, and then Chris would kind of travel independently of the band. Like, he had flown it. He had, like, a few days off before that gig, and he, he was in New York. I think he flew back into Detroit for that show. Okay. And he was going to stay the night and then go to Columbus, I think, the next the next uh, next gig in the solo. I think by, by plane. And and you mentioned the Instagram post, which I saw that day, which made it it really did, especially anybody that 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 like you know, oh hey, there's Chris Cornell. He's like posting like how fired up he is to play this show, and the next morning you wake up and and you hear the news. It's it is just mystifying. Yeah, and honestly, it will probably forever be mystifying to yeah. to so many people. It's just. It's just one of those things where you, as much as you can look at it from so many different perspectives, it just it will always, it will always you know leave question marks and and make you make you wonder what could have been and what might what might have been uh, different you know if, if other circumstances. I mean, you could drive yourself a crazy kind of yeah. doing that. You know, I've lost people in my life um, to that, and some of the book is dedicated to some of those people. Sure. And uh, I try to be as respectful of of what that meant as I as I possibly could in the book, and I hope that you know people un- you know. At least we'll understand what happened, even if they can't understand, right. you know, you know the, the, the why behind it. That is kind of the, the difficult thing. So hopefully, I'm being respectful when I ask you know questions like this, because um, I'm not I'm not a guy looking for salacious dirt, but I'm just more or less trying to get some understanding, you know, and all this stuff. Is there any idea that, that uh, do you have any idea? I should say uh, how long it would have been from like the t- when Vicky um, actually talked to Chris for a little bit and then from that t- moment to when the bodyguard uh, tried the first time, not when he kicked the door down, but when he, he tried to get in and found out that the door was locked from the inside. Like the how- timeline's a bit hazy on all that stuff, yeah. to be honest with you. I think the, I look back at the police report and everything. I, I couldn't come up with an answer off the top of my head. Okay. Um, well, he had quite a mix of substances in his system at the time. Um, ultimately, it was labeled uh, suicide by hanging, um, with the coroner saying drugs didn't contribute to the cause of death. To me, that seems a bit simplistic. Um, any thoughts there? Nah, not really. <laughs> okay. I know we're getting to the dark stuff, and, I, and, and I'm okay if you don't want to dig into it. I, I'm just trying to do, do my end, too, you know. Oh no, totally. I, I understand. You know, there's there's, uh, there's all those questions will always you know, come up, and you know, it's yeah. not. I'm not a, a medical expert or anything yeah. like that. I wouldn't want to weigh in on something I don't really know too much about. You know. All right, and, and well, then, so I can just explain for anybody listening. My point is, state of mind can definitely has plays a role in suicide, and to say that drugs had no role is, to me, a bit short sighted. But the coroner's being a bit, I don't know, just. Very to the matter of fact, I guess is all I'm getting at. Right, and and the Cornell Estate has a lawsuit uh, pending against the uh, the doctor prescribing the medication. You know, so I think that yeah. they would probably agree with your assessment. 
Okay, good enough. Um, the last line of the book, I got to tell you, man, it, it put chills on the back of my neck. It's, it's. I'm reading it as I'm looking, talking to you right now. Um, it's brilliant, and I'm, I'm still feeling it. Uh, you, you simply put, no one sings like him anymore. Uh, kudos, I guess is all I got to say there. That was the perfect line. Thank you so much, and it, and it's true, honestly. You know, there will. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to give too much away, but you know, I, I attended the, uh, the the tribute concert um, that it was held in in 2019 in the LA Forum, and mm-hmm. all these great, phenomenal, world class performers came on stage and sung all these Chris songs from Soundgarden to Solo Career, Audio Slave to Temple the Dog, and and uh, you know, Brandy Carlisle and, and Dave Grohl and Miley Cyrus and just uh, unbelievable singers. Um, you know, uh, Chris Stapleton, and, but. You couldn't help but feel, you know, at the end of the day, you know, um, if the guy walked through the door, he would have dusted them all. Uh, he, <laughs> he had a voice and a, and a power like no one else. And, you know, there's a there's definitely a Chris Cornell-shaped hole in the world that I don't think anyone will be able to fill anytime soon. Did you ever meet Chris? Briefly, uh, once in L.A. When, uh, he did a, an event um, uh, with Jimmy Page uh, for Jimmy Page's like book he had uh, put out in, like, 2000. 14, I think. Okay. Uh, met him briefly there. Uh, seen him multiple, multiple times, and interviewed multiple people around him. But um, didn't get the pleasure to kind of really sit down and. <laughs> as a biographer, I would have loved to have had more time with him than I had. But you know, oh way yeah. It goes. Um. Well, I think you kind of answered this one, but I'm going to just ask you, give you a chance to maybe elaborate more. Um. After spending so much time researching this book and writing it, you know, specifically about Chris. Did you almost get to feel like, even though you, you maybe you didn't know him that well, that you did? I think that it's a, it's a kind of a byproduct. You know, I, I wouldn't want to insult anyone who do, who did you know know Chris to the level of like a Kim Dial or absolutely or his family or friends or anything like that. I wouldn't I wouldn't claim to know him to that level. But you know, you read his words, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of words for years. You talk to people who knew him, and you can feel you know the the, the imprint that on their lives. And you can't help but know or, or feel, you know, him in some sort of way and, and kind of get, get into his headspace and how he wrote and, you know, his values and things. And I, I definitely, there's, there's a version of Chris in my head that I think that, um, that it will always kind of exist and be there and I'll always admire and, and return to it. I listen to those records and, you know, uh, I grew very fond of him as you, as you might expect, uh, yeah. just because, you know, he was an uncompromising dude who, you know, went from, um, you know, a, a high school dropout uh, who was, you know, had drug problems from the time he was a kid uh, who, you know, I don't think anyone expected to really to make it and uh, turn into one of the greatest rock stars of the last 50 years. Uh, yeah. It's a remarkable story. And he did it in a, in a remarkable way with, uh, with some remarkable talent. And uh, yeah, I, 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 my admiration for him is uh, only grew as, as, I, as I learned more about him while writing the book. Uh, there, there is an interview with him that it's it's very brief, but it's uh, it's one of my favorites, and it's early on, like around ninety. It's before he cut his hair. Let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> uh, he is like it's it's at a European festival of some sort, and he's like it's rainy, and he's interviewed under a tent by some guy, and uh, he he is polite and curt all at the same time, and it's it's just I don't know I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. I wish I could give you a better description, but to me, it really kind of sums up a lot about what I like about the guy. Um, he just had a, like you touched on it just, just a second ago with how he really was uncompromising in almost pretty much everything he did artistically mattered to him. Oh, absolutely. He didn't, he didn't suffer fools, but he also (laughs) did the things that he needed to do. You know, he took his responsibility seriously. Uh, and even that meant suffering through 
you know, the, the, the myriad of inter- interviews, you know, asking, you know, what's, what's it like to be friends with Kurt Cobain? And he had, had to right. go through, I'm sure, multiple times in the 90s. And, you know, what was Andrew Wood like? And you know, rehashing all the stories. And he always, he was always down to do it. Um, he may not always give the most verbose guy, uh, but in the times that he, he opened up, he was very revealing. Um, and, uh, you know, he kind of gave you glimpses of himself. But he was, he was also very private, very, very, especially in the 90s, uh, very, very private, dude. To the point where he's, like, shopping for records at Easy Street here in Seattle, like, after hours with a ball cap <laughs> pulled down, just to yeah. kind of some semblance of, you know, privacy. And you can imagine being Chris Cornell living in Seattle. You know, it's, he's like 6'2", or whatever. It's hard to miss that guy. Exactly. <laughs> It'd be pretty easy to pick out, even uh, even in a crowd. Sure. But, uh Corbin, I had a blast. Uh, you're actually very good at this. You should uh, you should do more of these. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. You're you're very entertaining. You add some insight. I, I guarantee the listeners are going to love it. So, thank you for coming on. Thank you for your time, people. Uh, you can find the book "Total Fucking Godhead" everywhere, right? Yeah, yeah. Everywhere. Amazon, independent record stores, independent bookstores, wherever they buy books, you can find that book. I, I'm sure that you. Uh, I hope that you enjoy it if you do pick it up. Yeah, and I, I'll give my own endorsement. It's uh, it's one of the better uh, um, rock biographies I've read. It's, it's very thorough. Like I had told you before we, we, we started here, there wasn't a lot of like questions I came away with because you did a really good job of kind of detailing most of the, the things that, that are important in Chris's life. So well done. Well, thank you. So I'm so stoked to hear that. I appreciate you. And thanks for having me on. I do appreciate the opportunity to talk. Yeah, all right. Right on, Corbin. You, uh, uh, anything else to pitch? No, that's it for right now. I might have something later, but we'll be in touch. <laughs> okay. All right, Corbin. Have a, have a good evening, man. You too. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Well, but say, hey, I'm Corbin Reef. I'm probably the best looking guy you've never met. Something like that, you know. <laughs> whatever you want to say, like okay, how, gotcha. however you want to promote yourself, like. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.